Hey, it's Alan, and I just wanted to let you know that you can now listen to the ongoing history of new music early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. If you're a fan of a particular artist, you want as much as you can get from that artist. You know, the albums, the singles, the t-shirts, all the downloads, and all the swag. Now, that's great when your favorite group releases an album, but with some bands going two, three, four, or even more years between records, things get kind of dry. Now, in the olden days, that was too bad. Distribution systems being what they were, access to everything a band did was pretty much impossible. The access was tightly, tightly controlled. About the best you could hope for was for one of those rare, elusive, and highly illegal bootleg records. Unauthorized recordings issued by some shadowy label without the permission of the artist. Mostly, these bootleg recordings featured live performances. After all, they were the easiest to make. But some contained stuff from the vaults that was never, ever designed to be heard by anyone outside of the band's inner circle. Heck, some of this material wasn't even heard by the executives of the group's record label. For years, we had this cat-and-mouse game between the labels and the artists and the bootleggers. And hardcore fans were right in the middle, waiting, hoping, and praying that they could somehow get their hands on this stuff. Bootleggers moved offshore to places like Italy, Singapore, and Indonesia, where copyright laws were, uh, shall we say, a little looser. One of the great bootleg labels was called KTS. They were renowned for two things. Super high-quality live recordings that they got from somewhere and a wide selection of studio recordings that were never, ever supposed to be released. I have a bunch of KTS releases, and they are very, very good. Then along came the Internet, and the bootleg CD industry suddenly dried up pretty much overnight. Why bother putting out something that you had to manufacture in a backstreet factory in China when you could just put it all online? Meanwhile, a strange thing happened with performers and managers. Instead of being all freaked out about this unfinished or unapproved stuff getting released into the wild by someone else, they started doing it themselves. I mean, why not use this material to forge a deeper relationship with their best customers, their biggest fans? The result has been an explosion of interesting material from some very big bands. And here's how you can track down some of it for yourself. This is the Ongoing History of New Music Podcast with Alan Cross. Welcome again, I'm Alan Cross, and we're going to call this show Tracking Down Demos. It's how you can go about finding some really interesting alternate material from your favorite bands. You've got all the official mainstream releases, but you want more. Well, here's where to find it. Let's start with this. It's Billy Talent and Devil in a Midnight Mass. But it's not the version you're expecting. Billy Talent and an alternate version of Devil in a Midnight Mass. And no, I did not steal that from the band's vault or out of Ben's car or anything like that. It comes from a perfectly legitimate place. I found that on the B-side of the 7-inch single of the official version of Devil in a Midnight Mass. This was a vinyl record that was only sold in the UK. 7-inch singles are quite the collectibles in England. They're limited edition runs, which implies scarcity. And the B-side often features something that can't be found anywhere else which results in exclusivity. In the case of Billy Talent, they authorized the use of that demo version on the B-side of Devil in a Midnight Mass to enhance that 7-inch single's collectability. So there's one place you can find demo versions and alternate takes 
on the B-sides of limited-run 7-inch vinyl records. Then there's CD singles. They're not as big as they used to be, at least not in North America. But one of the many ways fans could be persuaded to buy a CD single version of a song was by tempting them with some bonus tracks that aren't available anywhere else. The British were masters of this, especially Oasis and Blur. But other people got it too. Here's my favorite. This is interesting, enlightening, and sort of, I don't know, spooky all at the same time. Beck's breakthrough, of course, was the song Loser. It's from the Mellow Gold album of 1994. One of the other singles from that record was Beer Can, and it was released as a CD single featuring four other previously unreleased tracks. At least, that's what the label said. There's actually a fifth unlisted track buried right at the end, and it gives us some insight on how Loser came together. Beck worked on this song with his buddy Carl Stevenson. They had been put together by the people at Beck's indie label, which was a company called Bongload. Carl's a little weird and didn't see the point of Beck at the beginning, but after a while he became interested when he heard some of Beck's doodlings with a guitar and a sampler and a drum machine. Carl encouraged Beck to try rapping in the style of Public Enemy's Chuck D. Well, that didn't work, so Beck started becoming all self-deprecating. I'm the worst rapper in the world. I'm just a loser. And he started singing to himself. I'm a loser, baby, so why don't you kill me? And we all know where that took things. Anyway, the song was finished and issued as a single in late 93 and resulted in some pretty good things for Beck. But we got to get back to that beer can CD single. Way at the end, we get to hear Beck and Carl Stevenson trying to sort things out. It's like eavesdropping on the creative process that resulted in one of the most enduring songs of the 90s. Have a listen to this. That's Beck working on what would become Loser, a very raw, raw demo found buried and unlisted at the end of his beer can CD single of 1994. So that's another place where we can find demos, tucked onto CD singles. The third place to look is on reissues of older albums. One way to get fans to buy another copy of a record that they already own is to put out a new and improved version. And we fans are suckers, so we fall for this all the time. I, for example, am a huge fan of Elvis Costello. Look at all these copies of his second album, My Aim is True, that I have. This came out in 1978. Okay, here's the cassettes, then I bought the original vinyl, after that it was the CD, then it was the Ryko remaster, and finally the deluxe edition. These last two feature extra bonus material that was designed to entice his long-term fans to buy the album yet again. And Elvis has done this with a lot of his albums, and I, I think I bought them all. U2 has figured this out too. In 2008, they released deluxe versions of their first three albums, Boy, October, and War. Each features some previously hard-to-find or previously unavailable material, all of which gives us some insight into the band and their evolution. Here's a taste. U2's first big single, of course, was I Will Follow from the Boy album. And by all counts, this song had a difficult birth. It took a long, long time to get right. Here's a recording of the song where they hadn't quite got things to where they needed them to be. You too, with a previously lost version of I Will Follow from 1980. That particular recording appears in an official place, though. It's on the 2008 
deluxe reissue of the Boy album. Now, there are other versions. I have a bunch at home, but they are all unauthorized. U2 gets the bonus track thing. So does Elvis Costello and the Ramones and The Cure. They've all re-released old records with new stuff attached. So there's another place where you can find weird demos and alternate takes. As bonus tracks on reissues of old albums, they entice fans to buy the record yet again. In other words, what used to be a deep, dark secret, never intended for consumption by the public, has turned out to be very good for business. And speaking of good for business, this is where we can talk about the box set. If you make the effort to go through all the old tapes and recording sessions, you might be able to package everything in a nice, expensive box set with a very, very high profit margin. Now, believe me, this takes a very long time because sorting through old material is not easy. Often the tapes or discs are lost or misplaced or mislabeled or not labeled at all. The provenance of each song has to be established. The recordings need cleaning up. And then you have to go through all the legal hassles to make sure that no one's going to sue you for putting this stuff out. Still, it's worth the hassle. Box sets have become big business in the era of declining CD sales. Sure, you could probably get the audio for free from somewhere, but that's not the point. The fans want the whole package. The liner notes, the books and booklets, the extra artwork, and they're willing to pay a hefty premium for the privilege of owning this material. But when you consider that many box sets come out in limited numbers, there's also the possibility that they may increase in value. So it's kind of sort of almost an investment. One of the most anticipated box sets in the history of music was With the Lights Out, a four-CD set featuring what was left of the Nirvana legacy. When Kurt died, fans wondered what he had left behind. It had to be something, right? Well, the real answer was not much. The only truly finished thing that turned up was the song You Know You're Right. Then came November the 23rd, 2004, more than 10 years after Kurt's death. Just in time for Christmas, Kel surprise, we got a bunch of stuff in the form of a box set, and it was pretty good. With the Lights Out contained some pretty raw stuff from Nirvana's history, going all the way back to 1987. One of the most interesting tracks is this one. It's an early, early rehearsal of a song that you probably know. The audio was a little rough, but that's the point. It's raw and real and recorded as it happened. Nirvana from either late 1990 or early 1991. It's a rehearsal demo of a new song that Kurt called Smells Like Teen Spirit. And it's one of the first things that featured their new drummer, Dave Grohl. Of course, they took that into the studio, polished it up a little bit, and let it change the world. But that's how the song sounded during its earliest days. The words are different, the arrangement is different, and it's almost a minute longer than what we got on Nevermind. David Bowie, The Cure, The Jam, The Ramones, Joy Division, The Velvet Underground, The Smashing Pumpkins, they've all benefited from putting demo versions into their box set collections. When we come back, I've got a few other places where you can find strange demo material, some of it's completely legal, and some of it is, um, not. You'll see. Welcome back. I'm Alan Cross, and we're looking for hidden treasure, specifically demo versions of songs that we all know very, very well. This material used to be hidden and locked away, but these days, though, it's more freely available than you might realize. 
The first part of the show was all about the physical sources for this material. 7-inch singles, CD singles, reissued CDs, and box sets. Now we're going online. Bands know that the quickest and easiest way to get and keep fans is to make sure they feel special. After all, if a fan is going to give a group his or her undying devotion, if that fan is going to be a freelance evangelist for everything the group does, then it makes sense to treat that superfan with respect. Weezer gets this. They not only have a very well-developed and sophisticated fan club, but they also feed fans with cool material that's not on any of their CDs. This brings us to the next source of demo material, official band websites. Here, for example, is something that I got from Rivers and Company. Again, the audio is kind of rough, but that's the point. A demo version of Undone the Sweater Song from Weezer. The proper version is on the Blue Album. But before it got that far, it sounded like that. And thanks to Weezer's generosity with their fans, the group released that raw demo. Blur did the same thing. Their breakthrough album was Park Life in 1994. One of the big songs was the title track, which featured a British actor named Phil Daniels doing the speaking bits. But Phil wasn't with the band when they wrote the song. He was only added later. In the demo stages of the track, Damon Albarn had to do those bits himself. And, um, well, here. And morning soup can be avoided if you take a route straight through what is known as. John's got Brewer's truth. He gets intimidated by the dirty pigeons. They love a bit of it. Blur with the demo version of Park Life, recorded in 1993, before they hired actor Phil Daniels to do the speaking parts in the verses. Blur graciously made that version available to their fans via their official website. It's nice, huh? But what if the fans want to take some initiative? I mean, running and maintaining a website takes a lot of time, and it can be really expensive once you start counting bandwidth costs. Well, some bands have no problem with this. Let the fans take care of it. I'll give you a great example of letting the fans run things themselves next. Welcome back. I'm Alan Cross, and we're looking at ways to find and collect demo versions. Demos are the unfinished trial versions of songs that we eventually come to know. Fans want these songs because they absolutely have to have everything their favorite band has ever done. And it used to be that they were hidden away like some shameful secret. But now, thanks to things like B-sides and bonus tracks and box sets, it's easier than ever to find them. And like we saw with Blur and Weezer, the internet has opened a whole new arena for collecting these songs. This brings us to Pearl Jam. As bands go, you don't get much more populous than them. You get the idea that everything they do is pretty much done with the fan in mind. In some cases, this means going the extra distance when it comes to shows or CDs. In others, it means just getting out of the way. Pearl Jam is one of those groups which has no trouble being open about everything they create. Fans are allowed to tape their shows. And Pearl Jam doesn't seem to mind fans that take some extra initiative and set up special websites dedicated to them and their music. Some of these sites freely distribute Pearl Jam material that's never, ever been officially released. But again, Pearl Jam doesn't seem to care. Their silence is encouragement. So if you know where to look, you can find sites dedicated to Pearl Jam that offer some pretty interesting stuff. For example, look what I found for a free download. A series of recordings that document the birth of one of Pearl Jam's biggest songs. We start with a cassette demo that made its way down to Eddie Vedder in San Diego. 
Stone and Jeff were looking for something to do after their band Mother Love Bone fell apart when their singer Andrew Wood died of a heroin overdose. They had some song ideas down on tape, but they were just ideas, no words, just loose ideas. This tape became known in Pearl Jam mythology as the Gossman Tape, and it featured a recording that had the working title Dollar Short. And it sounded like this. This tape was passed to a friend named Jack Irons. He knew a kid down in San Diego. This kid was Eddie. Eddie listened to Dollar Short over and over again and came up with some lyrics. Then he dubbed his singing over that original cassette and sent it back up to Seattle. Fans call this the Mama-san tape. Okay, pick it up where we faded out last time, okay? Go. The guys in Seattle really liked what they heard, so they asked Eddie to come on up. The new band was called Mookie Blaylock, and they went into the studio. And by this time, Dollar Short had been renamed Alive. And when Mookie Blaylock made a proper demo, it sounded like this. Well, that worked out pretty well, and Mookie Blaylock found themselves with a record deal. By the next round of demos, they had changed their name to Pearl Jam, and Alive sounded like this. Finally, it was done, and the 10 album was released with the full and proper version of Alive that we know today. Pearl Jam, doing the evolution of Alive. And where did those demo versions come from? From a fan site that Pearl Jam graciously allows to exist. Very nice. I'm going to give you one final source for old demos. And that's the indie releases that came before the big one. There are countless cases of indie albums or indie cassettes that feature early versions of a song that would later be refined, re-recorded, and released to become something big for the band. I'll give you an example. Before the Smashing Pumpkins signed with Virgin Records and issued the Gish album in 1991, they released a series of indie cassettes. One of those cassettes was called Moon, and it featured an early version of the song Rhinoceros. It basically served as a demo for Gish. But here's the challenge. Only about 500 or so copies of the Moon cassette were made. If you want the real thing, you got to be prepared to look far and wide. Or you can just listen to this. The Smashing Pumpkins from their indie days. That's Rhinoceros, the original version from a 1989 indie cassette called Moon. If you're a hardcore fan of some band, or if you're just a collector of alternate and esoteric recordings, I hope you got something out of this program. All the places you can find these things. B-sides of 7-inch singles. Bonus tracks on CD singles. Bonus tracks on reissues of old albums. Box sets. Official band websites and fan websites that seem to have the approval of the bands, plus the old, original indie versions. 
One thing that we did not talk about were unofficial, unapproved sources. Things like bootleg CDs, leaked MP3 files. But that's for another time. Meanwhile, I invite you to play on YouTube. See what you find. Additional digging for this show by Bruce Henney. He's the guy that found all that cool Pearl Jam stuff. Don't tell on him. Technical production for all this is by Rob Johnston. I'm Alan Cross. You've been listening to the Ongoing History of New Music podcast with Alan Cross. Subscribe to the podcast through iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, and everywhere you find your favorite podcasts. 